Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. As you know, this program is mostly built around the Art Museum exhibition calendar. And as you've probably also noticed, we've had to deviate from our norms as the pandemic has continued. A little later on, you'll hear me talking with a guest who has an exhibition coming up at MoMA PS1, and you'll hear me explain how that's happening, but we don't know when. Anyway, this is all a long way of saying we're going to do something different next week and that we want you to be a part of it. My guest next week will be the critic Jillian Steinhauer. You've probably read her in the New York Times, The Nation, The New Republic, and elsewhere. She'll join me to talk shop and especially to take your questions. We've never done a Q&A show before, and we need your help to make it work. Here's how. Email your questions for either of us, or for both of us, to modernartnotespodcast at gmail.com, or reply to mine or Jill's prompts on Twitter and Instagram. That's modernartnotespodcast at gmail.com. We're planning to tape on Monday, so don't dilly-dally. My first guest is Nicole R. Fleetwood. She's the author of Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration an examination of how the imprisoned have turned to art-making in an attempt to resist the brutality and depravity of American imprisonment. The book was published by Harvard University Press. Amazon offers it for $30. An exhibition of the same title is forthcoming at MoMA PS1. It was curated by Fleetwood and Amy Rosenblum-Martin with Jocelyn Miller. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, MoMA PS1 has yet to announce opening or closing dates for the exhibition though a museum spokesman said that the exhibition will open whenever the museum reopens. Marking Time features art made by people in prisons and by non-incarcerated artists concerned with issues related to repression and imprisonment in America. Fleetwood is a professor of American Studies and Art History at Rutgers University. On the second segment, Hammer Museum curator Allegra Pacenti joins me to discuss several recent acquisitions. But first, Nicole Fleetwood, after the break. Around the world, art museums, as community gathering sites, are making difficult decisions in the face of COVID-19. In this new two-part episode of the Getty's Art and Ideas podcast, President Jim Cuno gathers six U.S. museum directors for a candid discussion of the pandemic's effect on their museums. These insightful conversations address a wide range of topics, from the logistical challenges of how to reopen to the role of museums in society. Part one features Max Holine of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, Kaywin Feldman of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and James Rondo of the Art Institute of Chicago. In part two, hear from Matthew Teitelbaum of the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, Anne Philbin of the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, and Timothy Potts of the J. Paul Getty Museum. The Art and Ideas podcast can be found now on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Music. Support for The Man podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. On view from March 13th through August 2nd at the Pulitzer is Terry Adkins, Resounding, a career-spanning exhibition that surveys the trajectory of this influential artist's expansive and improvisational practice. The exhibition features a range of Adkins' work, including rarely shown early sculptures and works on paper, as well as his acclaimed recitals, installations of related artworks with which Adkins explored the legacy of unsung but significant historic figures and moments. The exhibition also includes a robust selection of items that Adkins collected, books, records, musical instruments, and other objects, from a diversity of artistic traditions that highlight the breadth of Adkins's literary, musical, and visual influences. To plan your visit or to purchase an exhibition catalog, visit pulitzerarts.org. 
And we're back. Nicole Fleawood, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. In the book's preface, you note that this project is, in some measure, a specific engagement with how the state wields representation in support of its tough-on-crime policies and effectively to build support for sentencing in this country that is wildly beyond global norms. How did and how does the state use representation to build support for the warehousing of particularly young Black men? So my way of approaching that question, because it is overwhelming and, and, you know, scholars and critics and journalists have delved into it in different kinds of ways, I, I focus on the personal and journey through my family and my family's experiences with incarceration. And I start in the preface by talking about how incarceration has impacted where I grew up and my family directly. As I was working on the book and thinking about this, I was thinking about the ways that my cousins, especially my male cousins, have been represented by the criminal legal system and also by local journalism when they've been arrested for different things and how crushing and devastating that is for the family as well as for them, of course. I remember even one of my cousin's fathers saying that a judge had described my cousin, their son, as like an animal, and with animalistic language, visually creating an animal out of, out of him. And so the dehumanization and, and, and like rendering as monsters, black boys, black men, black teenagers, it's so deeply psychic, I think, in this country, but I mean, like the psychosis of this nation. I feel like it's hard to say one thing about it. And, and I think that art is a really important way to explore it visually. And so I'm thinking about even like Alexandra Bell series. I don't know, the Wolfpack series from like Central Park Five and the language of, of, of like the, the kind of language around describing now the exonerated five. Or I'm thinking about Ava DuVernay and the work that she does in 13 to like expose the anti-Black violence that's so woven into the fabric of this nation. So, you know, I was trying to figure out a way of approaching the visuality of prisons without reproducing the violence of representation, especially against Black and Brown people. So I thought, how do I get at the visuality of prison without rehearsing what a scholar, Michelle Brown, calls like penal spectatorship? And that's the way that representations of incarceration, of incarcerated people, of just like carceral structures actually justify this, this kind of system, this brutal system. And even in like the current moment around this pandemic, we see the same thing happening, knowing that, for example, Ohio prisons, a prison where I've had incarcerated relatives like Marion Prison, for example, is now the epicenter. There's like over 1900 people incarcerated. They're testing positive. It's like almost the entire population of that prison. But the logic, the kind of carceral logic of this country is that they still should be in prison. And that to me is so, it's a death system. You know, it's a system that literally is about, or what Ruthie Wilson Gilmore says, what racism is, and that's about who lives and who dies, or like who, the premature death of certain populations because of the conditions that are meant for them to not be viable life. 
So this is like Marion Prison is an example of the conditions that make life not viable for the most vulnerable population. And the way that that gets represented in the media, I mean, there's some urgency around it, but the logic is still that they did something bad and therefore they deserve to be in cages. An an individualized view rather than an understanding of a system built to do a specific thing. Well, and I was struck by how one of of the strategies the book wields is the books published in color. The art is in color. And at a very simple level, the images the state shows us of prisons and of people in prisons is is almost always black and white. Right. And even when they're in color, they're still black and white, right? Like we're we're so saturated with images of incarceration and incarcerated people. Those images are everywhere. They're in like, you know, hit shows, they're like documentaries, just the news. I mean, there's so much that I think we've just normalized. We've just accepted a way of seeing prisons and seeing incarcerated people. And it makes it harder to shake up or abolish that those systems because we've just accepted so fundamentally is that this is part of the like logic of how our country functions and also ideas about like good and bad, right and wrong, law abiding, law breaking. Like we have all these kind of simplistic binary ways of thinking about why prisons are supposed to exist. And then there's so much, so much rehearsed image. And it's interesting, you said the word individualized. I also think that it's really systemic, like how those representations get rehearsed and reproduced. And and we're flooded with them. We're so flooded with them that we don't often stop to think of the meaning behind them and the meaning behind like a punishment system that removes people from their home, from their families, from their communities, from employment, from healthcare, from access to good food, from often access to clean water, air, like, and then they spend their life, their status is that of the condemned or that as like their status is a bad subject. And every moment they have to rehearse being punished by the state. And when we stop to think about that, I, I hope it's unsettling, but I do think like the rehearsing of images of carcerality in mainstream media, just in our visual world, just normalizes that. Even the conversations around this pandemic is around that giving incarcerated people the possibility of living, which like if they're stuck in these death traps, they're going to die, right? The possibility of living makes, quote, society more vulnerable or unsafe by letting them out. It's just such a flawed and, and deeply troubling way of looking at millions of people, because we always always say there's like over 2 million people, like people rehearse that number. It's over 2 million people in U.S. prisons, where there's like actually more, because if you also think about like detention center, there's all these like gray area spots where people are still being held captive in various ways and being punished that we don't have a name for, and including some of the detention centers and some of the halfway houses where people who are on parole have to live. And just, you know, there's just various ways that people are still very much tethered to these punitive structures that we are completely unaware of. So my desire, my wish for the project was to think about how much prisons have impacted our visual world and visual culture, but from the sites 
of punitive captivity, more so than from mass media. I deliberately did not engage with images that widely circulate through film, TV, mass media. That was intentional because I wanted to defamiliarize people with what they think they see and know about prisons. So the way you do that, of course, is by showing, considering, and contextualizing art made by men and women who are in prison. And pretty early on in the book, you note that, in a way, you're not identifying anything new here, that art has been made in prison for a long time, which reminded me that if we really want to turn back the clock, we could go back to Hubert Robert in Hubert Robert and the French Revolution when in the 10 months he was imprisoned, he made 53 paintings on canvas, many more in plates, and two years ago or three years ago or whatever it was now, they were on the walls of the National Gallery of Art. Has the visual culture of incarceration changed as America has enforced mass incarceration on segments of its population? My book was very much interested in the era that we call mass incarceration, although like many people who do like prison studies and carceral studies problematize that framework of thinking about like the past four decades or so as this period of mass incarceration. I thought it was also still important to kind of use that because there is definitely a kind of hyper incarceration of specific populations that take place in the late 20th century into the 21st century. So I really wanted to think about that, the hyper incarceration. Everyone's not being mass incarcerated, right? It's the hyper incarceration of certain areas, especially certain zip codes or certain blocks in New York City, for example, or in Detroit, or like it's not all of Detroit or it's not all of New York City that's like being warehouse upstate in prisons and rural communities. There are specific populations, specific neighborhoods that are being depopulated. And how does that then impact visual culture? One of the ways that I started thinking about that is visiting my incarcerated relatives in Ohio and looking around the visiting room at various crafts and visual art projects that were on display because many prisons will have makeshift photo studios, but also kind of makeshift galleries or kind of these provisional spaces where art made by incarcerated people is displayed. And so one of the things that you see growing is more use of photography inside prisons, not just as criminal indexes. And by criminal indexes, I mean like mugshots and prison ID cards, but used by incarcerated people to capture either visits with uh, with loved ones or to self-represent. So that's how I started the project, was like this, these kind of vernacular photos, using my own family's archive, looking at these images. And from looking and lo- just looking closely and right in the book that for a while I avoided these images because they were like much more difficult for me to grapple with than letters from my incarcerated relatives. Somehow the kind of visual, the photograph of like my incarcerated loved one posing in a prison cell with a fantasy backdrop was just so jarring and just so difficult for me to look at. And so I had to do this practice of looking where I started spending more time with these images. And and this is also like around the time, like part of what the book is tracking in a way for me is my studying of also Buddhism. So I start, I'm able to look longer and then I start seeing things differently. And so one of the things I took for granted initially were the backdrops 
And then I got very curious about the backdrops. Like I was not looking at the backdrops. I was like, oh, these don't just like emerge in the vacuum. How are these made? And then I started to learn, oh, incarcerated people are painting these backdrops. Let me, let me jump in for a quick second to describe. Those backgrounds tend to be painted or, or, or you know, locally produced, if you will. And they're bright. They suggest and are representations of, of other places, very a, a beach or palm trees or, or what have you. And then individuals and their families are able to make photographs in, in, in front of them. Right, right. And often what's represented is open space, like a counterpoint to punitive captivity, right? So I started studying those backdrops. And this is to get back at your question about like how has mass incarceration changed visual practices? Studio photos became like a kind of a popular means of, of people documenting themselves. So, right. So there's, there's like a long history of this, but what I got more and more interested in is the kind of voluminous nature of our voluminous kind of practices that were taking place because you have so many people in prison. So it's like, even if these are practices that have long histories or come out of other traditions in prison, like for example, one of the things that I learned that I found absolutely fascinating is that so much of the art making in prisons is influenced by like black radical traditions, even by non-black incarcerated people right there. So they have taken on this radical tradition, like black nationalism, the black arts movement still have like huge influence over what people are reading and, and the kind of representation that's happening among incarcerated people. Like for example, there's a person I write, I write about named Hungre Todd Tarselli, and he's a Korean American. He was adopted by an American family when he you know brought to the U.S. very young. And he's currently incarcerated in Pennsylvania in a state prison there where he's been for decades and where he might spend the rest of his life. And he's been mentored by black imprisoned radicals. So his art is so much representative of the kind of the kind of peer learning that takes place among incarcerated people and the mentoring of like a generation of largely black men and, and some black women from like the Black Liberation Army, the Black Panthers, who've been incarcerated from since the 60s and 70s. And they're like now these grandparents in some ways, you know, they're like and there's many of them are in their 60s and 70s. And many of them have maintained their sanity and their purpose by mentoring generations of people coming in prison. And that is seen in the artwork and also the writing that comes out of prison. Thinking a little bit, we're going to get to one of the ways that happened, particularly in New York State. But before we do, let's talk about some specific artists and some specific works in the book and, and how they act, what they tell us. I think the very first artwork you talk about in the book is particularly sage. It offers prison as studio. Who painted it and how does it, how does it work that way? So I opened the introduction with a painting by Ronnie Goodman, and it was painted during Ronnie Goodman's incarceration at San Quentin State Prison in California. And he's documenting the art workshop space that's run by an organization called the William James Association. And it's one of the organizations that has the longest running art programs in prison. It's been around since the 70s and has uh, run continuously since then, you know, different kind of iterations, depending on like what kind of their funding sources. But 
But yes, so they have this very long history of working with incarcerated artists in California prisons. And so Ronnie creates self-portrait of an artist at work, right? And so, and we know that there's like just such a storied history of artists painting or drawing or, you know, documenting themselves at work. And in so many ways that his painting is serene, like from the light that's pouring in from the upper windows, the way that he's composed and you can tell he's in an immersive state. Around him are works of art and, you know, various kind of tools, art making tools. And it's only like some really subtle markers that show you this is about prison. And so one is he's in prison blues. He's in a like prison, especially a blue that's, I call it a carceral blue. And it's a blue that like gets reproduced in California prisons, especially. And we know California has the largest incarcerated population of any state in the country. And then there's also a window at in the upper corner of the painting where the prison guards can look down, but can't be seen. So I talk about the ways that prison and and the, the kind of carceral structures emerge in the painting itself and also are the conditions out of which the painting gets produced. And the kind of tension also of this artist who's like, one self-representing, painting himself into a tradition, right? Into like a tradition he's very aware of and also kind of dreaming, planning, making, you know, while held in punitive captivity. And so I use that painting as a way of thinking about what I feel like are just the kind of ongoing tensions in the book. And it's, and, and, and I think the concept of like carceral aesthetics that I try to develop explores those tensions and it's the production of art under the conditions of imprisonment or that reflect imprisonment, right? And so that's about kind of constraint, restraint, forcing a relationship between the punished subject and the state, a diminishment of of dreams, a diminishment of possibility, and yet people are experimenting, dreaming, making, and using art to connect with others. Ronnie Goodman is out of prison. He's currently unhoused in San Francisco. So it took me a really long time to make contact with him. He has an email address and like a voicemail, but he doesn't have regular access to technology to check either of those things. So it, it was like, I think a year and a half of me trying to reach out to him before we were able, actually able to talk. And when we were talking about that painting, I, he said, what part of what he was doing was curating. He's like, those works that are near me, that's not how they were hanging in that space. He said, I was bringing the works closer to me that mattered more. The works that either I did or friends did were the ones that I was drawing near me or literally painting, like he drew, drawing as in pulling cl- closer to him. So he's also doing curatorial work in there. And he's also like reflecting. He said that was a painting that he made once he had his release date. We'll have an image of it on, on manpodcast.com. San Quentin comes up uh, a lot in the book. Why does it have so many art and arts, so not just visual art, uh, and related education programs? So San Quentin is a prison that, you know, we can think of a few prisons in the U.S. that 
are, quote, notorious. Their reputation and representation is so looms so large in the cultural imagination, in the political imagination. Angola, Rikers, Attica, San Quentin, you know, those are like to name a few that are just like, you know, these for many people, Leavenworth. And so San Quentin has a amazing, also robust black radical tradition and a tradition of organizing politically. It it's also has a history of brutality and of just like massive state violence against incarcerated people. In the past couple of decades, and I, I should say since the 70s, there's been lots of art programs in San Quentin. San Quentin. And some of it is because of leadership, prison at men. I think some of it is also really robust ongoing relationships that incarcerated people have had with non-incarcerated activists, artists, and educators in the Bay Area. So, you know, but like when Foucault was at Berkeley, he did a course in in San Quentin, right? And a lot of Berkeley professors have done courses in San Quentin, right? So there's also, there's this really robust kind of exchange that's happened with San Quentin and San Quentin with intellectuals, activists, and artists in the Bay Area, right? And that partly is, I think, it's proximity and partly is this storied history of radical activism, radical arts, and also, but in, intense state brutality. San Quentin of today is considered a very different San Quentin than the San Quentin of yesterday in terms of just like the kind of access people have to arts and to non-incarcerated allies. And so, for example, you might know the podcast Ear Hustle, which is a wildly popular podcast co-produced by Erlon Woods and who was in San Quentin for, I think, a couple of decades. He was re- released last year. And Nigel Poor, who, who's an artist who had been working and teaching in San Quentin for many, many years. So that's just an example of the kinds of collaboration. I think a lot of it is a collaboration. I have a whole chapter on collaborations between non-incarcerated artists and incarcerated artists or incarcerated populations. And I think San Quentin is just one of those places where it, there's there's been like decades long relationships that have been maintained in various ways. And and, I, and, and it is part, largely through the, the kind of commitments of incarcerated people and organizations and artists outside of prison who make sure those relationships are fostered no matter what's happening politically or lockdowns in prisons and just finding ways of kind of, of, of continuing those conversations. Another artist you write about is Mary Enoch Elizabeth Baxter, who makes work under the name Isis the Savior. And I bring her up because it's important to note, I think, that many of the people in your book continue to make work after they leave prison and as their life narrative advances. So how does her 2018 video triptych, Ain't I a Woman?, address both her own experience, but also a broader history that reaches back to the 1850s. Uh, Mary Baxter is, or Isis the Savior, is an incredible artist and activist. She has been out of prison for, for several years and is currently really involved in decarceration efforts in Philadelphia, where she's based, and especially around the current moment with the pandemic. She's working with activists and local politicians to 
to get women out of prison, especially pregnant women, mothers. There's a big movement around Mother's Day that's it's been growing every Mother's Day to like to bail incarcerated mothers out. So that's one of the projects that she's involved in. She is someone who I met actually through in a way that I met many of the artists is through networks of formerly incarcerated artists who would tell me about other incarcerated artists or formerly incarcerated artists. So that's how I got access to a lot of the artists in the book and including Mary. I learned about Mary through Russell Craig and Jesse Crines, who are two prominent figures in the book. So in 2018, Mary um, received a fellowship called the Rite of Return Fellowship. And it's a fellowship that was created to support formerly incarcerated artists. And through that fellowship, Mary made the video, Ain't I a Woman, that reflects on her experience of being pregnant and in labor while warehoused in a prison in Pennsylvania. And the video document the horror of her like 43 hours of labor while she's shackled and then eventually having to have an emergency c-section and the shackling is a practice that still happens in some prisons in the U.S. when incarcerated women are in labor it is both physically and symbolically reflective of like just like ultra state violence and the power to determine who lives and dies. There's no reason medically or around safety why an incarcerated, someone in labor should be shackled. And of course, it harkens back very much to slavery, chattel slavery, and not only the kind of forced reproduction of Black women, but also the conditions under which they labored like reproductive labor and also their their labor on on plantations and Mary's very aware of that very aware of it by even naming uh, the project ain't I ain't I a woman you know to speak directly to Sojourner Truth's you know well-known abolitionist suffragist uh, speech of the same title so she's definitely connecting to to that history but she's also thinking about how incarceration has been a constant since black people entered the quote new world. So she has a line in her triptych and she's also, I should say that she's a sound artist, right? So she's collaborating with people on this video, but she's also narrating her experience through like this really powerful rap. That And I think the project is, the video is like 15 minutes, if I'm not mistaken. And so she has this line that it's not a school to prison pipeline, it's a prison to prison pipeline. And going on to say the moment that the first captives were taken from the coast of Africa and brought to the U.S., people have been incarcerated. But that the like Africans and the descendants of enslaved Africans have had this kind of long history. I don't think she would say it's continuous as in it's the same, like it does it, like it does change. And there's lots of historians who really debate whether we can talk about slavery in the same way that we talk about contemporary prisons. But she is making this link, and the link is around black subjugation, subjugation and, and captivity. And her story and like the birthing of her son becomes this powerful way for her to like reflect on 
centuries long subjugation and captivity of black people. And it's also a way for her to connect directly with other incarcerated mothers and pregnant women in the ways that also like Angela Davis and Asada Shakur in their, both in their autobiographies talk about incarcerated pregnant women being forced to labor while shackled. Right. And this is these are books from the like 70s. Right. And so we see this kind of continuation of these practices, these, you know, horrifying and brutal practices in her contemporary work. Let me jump in real quick, seeing as you mentioned a couple of works of literature. You note a couple times in the book that literature and textual material, bad phrase, produced in prisons has been far more studied and far more received than visual material produced in prisons. I mean, why is that? Literature, prison literature, and how that has circulated more broadly in the public than visual art, for example. Um, and I think part of it is just very much like, like for practical reasons, it's easier to get text out than one of Dean Gillespie's miniatures, for example, or one of Jared Owen's abstract paintings, right? So it's easier for people to just, and, and, and I mean easier, like, you know, like in terms of just access to materials, but also just mailing it out in a letter. There's also a history of incarcerated people actually being encouraged to write, that writing is, especially, I mean, this is go back to like the kind of Quaker system of, you know, of, of prison being a place of spiritual, moral, and psychological, like, reform or reha rehabilitating the soul of a person, right? And that a writing, like, like, literally writing one's testimony, right? This is very religious, the idea of testimony. And one's journey to redemption is part of the earlier logic of prisons in the U.S., you still see the vestiges of that, sometimes problematically when collections of prison writings are gathered and published by non-incarcerated editors or, or publishers. It will be writings that kind of have that type of narrative arc from like bad subject to reform subject. So it's, it's, a, it's a narrative convention that we're used to. And I'm not saying all prison writings fit within that at all. I mean, I would say George, you know, George Jackson, and they just brought up Asada Shakur and Angela Davis and, you know, radical imprisoned writers who are like also giving us political theory and a, a analysis of the state and state power from sites of captivity, right? So you do have these other forms of writing that are emerging. Shaka Senghor is a formerly incarcerated writer who has a a really popular memoir, and it's literally called Writing My Wrongs, right? Like, it's, and so I think that idea of writing one's wrongs is part of still this kind of underpinning of a reform model that prisons are supposedly a place where people are somehow reformed or rehabilitated, and writing fits into that very that kind of mandate. So I think that that's part of it also. And then, you know, so much of like self-study that happens in prisons. I mean, a lot of people do take on, they kind of create curriculum where they're like, you know, they're like, I'm going to read, you know, access to uh, law books or whatever kind of history books. They're doing a lot of self-study, guided studying. 
and writing about that too. So there's all kinds of ways that writing saturates prisons. And and two of the people in my book were illiterate or semi-literate when they went to prison. So writing and reading was like a huge way that they kind of occupied their time and also tried to like, you know, do just self-education. But one of the reasons that I wanted to focus on visual art is because I think it's a much more challenging practice for incarcerated artists to engage. And I'm and writing, we know, is you write, I write. Writing is hard. So I'm not saying writing itself is not challenging, but access to writing material is pretty, I mean, it's in most prisons, you can ha- get some access to a piece of paper and a broken pencil. Some places you have to pay, you know, it's different, but generally that's an access that they can get. Access to paint, to brushes, to canvases, to sculptural materials, all those things are like so arbitrary and so uneven across prisons and how incarcerated people take uh, what I call, you know, state goods, uh, what I call penal matter and just transform them into works of art. For me, that was so like exciting and so interesting. And I wanted to like really delve more into that. Let me jump in and bring up Dean Gillespie then, because in the book you use him in particular to detail how imprisoned men and women gain the tools you're talking about. And as you note, it's harder than people think. For example, certain paint colors aren't available because of the chemicals they can, they contain. So how did uh, and how do impre- imprisoned men and women work around institutional strictures? So for Dean, Dean Gillespie, I enter in a story about Dean, or I tell the story of Dean Gillespie by also telling the story partly of my cousin and my family, because it is through my cousin, Alan, who was imprisoned with Dean, that I met Dean. They became really good friends. And even that friendship became part of like the theory of my book, because I look at how art making in prisons and access to material creates these networks and communities across racial and ethnic differences in prison. So prisons are governed by very strict racial codes. Most prisons where like you brought up San Quentin earlier, we were talking about San Quentin. Like I remember hearing one of the episodes on ear hustle where they were talking about like, even like race determines when you shower, like black incarcerated people shower together, white incarcerated people shower together. It determines what you eat and where you eat and who you share food with. Like it's so entrenched, these kind of racial codes. And what I heard time and time again among incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people is that art was a provisional space is one of the only spaces where people came together across racial and ethnic lines and where that was condoned, like where you wouldn't get kind of shaken down by other incarcerated people or prison guards, because often those racial, those racial lines are very much enforced by, by staff and by incarcerated people. Right. So art was one of those spaces where people were actually allowed to come across, come together across differences. And Dean Gillespie is a great example of that because he's from a rural white community in Southwest Ohio. And I mean, it's kind of at the epicenter of like, Ohio for Trump type people, right? Feel the kind of way that race, race feels very policed in a really 
eerie way for me there. And Dean, who is white, made friends across racial and ethnic lines in prison. And his art is reflective of that. So he created dozens of elaborate miniatures during his 20 years in prison. And they are like exquisite. People and museums have tried to collect them. I mean, they're just these like, and they're also like weirdly, like the emotion, they're like happy, nostalgic, you know, almost playful pieces uh, that he made over 20 years in prison. And the book, I make a very deliberate effort to say that this is a book that's not about innocence or guilt. That is a project for me that's rooted in like a black feminist abolition perspective where I think prison should be ended. But I do also acknowledge when someone, part of their story is uh, the story of wrongful conviction. And Dean spent 20 years in prison for crimes he didn't commit and made these like happy works like these miniatures that are just like super joyful and super detailed. And he did that through working across differences, racial and ethnic differences to get access to materials. So he would plan out a project and I talk, I talk about like penal space, penal time, penal matter. And these are like conditions under which incarcerated people work. And the time is like your ex- one's experience of time in prison is being is is as punishment. So your you, your measure of punishment is like time, right? And that's like so profound and existential. And it's a way that most of us don't have to experience time. And uh, you know, and I brought this up before, and someone said, well, you know, t- the idea of time out that we give children is kind of like part of that carceral logic, right? But that like you know, standing in a corner for five minutes, or but thinking about like you know living in a cell, a six foot by nine foot cell as punishment for X amount of time. It's just, it's to me, it's just such a bizarre way of thinking about like how we discipline in, in our society, but it's so normalized. And Dean like quite literally managed penal time by planning out these miniatures. And he said before he started one, he would say, oh, this is going to take me 18 months. And it meant that he would spend 18 months thinking about something else, obsessing about something else instead of his time in prison. So he'd spend 18 months obsessing about like, how am I going to get access to wire or nails or wood chunks or, you know, just these different things that he would use to create these really elaborate miniatures. And then he found ways of getting these miniatures out. Some of them were like, ways that were approved by the prison guards and some other ways of getting the miniatures out and sending them to his parents. And once he was released 20 years later, their garage literally was like, it's filled with his miniatures. Are artists who are working in prison using some of the same imagery or references to historical imagery that we might more typically see in art that moves through the fine art commercial gallery system? I'm thinking of maybe references to to slave ships, for example. There are some formal and informal collectives that emerge in prison, like art collectives, a lot of like peer learning groups. So, for example, I look at three people who were in prison together in Fairton, New Jersey, and they formed an art collective. And it was also a multiracial art collective. And the artists are Gilberto Rivera, Jesse Crimes and Jared Owens. And they turned their small art workshop in Ferriton Prison into this like 
robust space where they were doing political theory together. And then they were all subscribing to art journals or art magazines, one each because they, they, you know, resource poor people, but pooling those resources together and then teaching each other. So they'd study an artist and then they'd come in uh, to the circle and then they'd share what they learned. They were playing around with all, like conceptual practices. Uh, Jarrett was obsessed with Jackson Pollock and some other artists and really like, he said, I want to turn prison into abstraction, like especially time. And so he was like, worked on becoming an abstract painter. He also was doing a lot of incorporating images, historical images around racial subjugation into his work. One of his most well-known pieces is Elapsium where he takes the iconic image of Brooks' slave ship that has been used by for centuries as a kind of image among abolitionists um, that I have to say is written about very beautifully by art historian Cheryl Finley in her book, Committed to Memory, where she looks at the movement of this iconic image, the Brooks' slave. And so he's actually incorporating that kind of iconicity into his art and so in Elapsium, what he does is he takes the Brooks slave ship and he overlays the blueprint of Ferriton Prison where he's incarcerated. And he lines up the holding cells. And then, you know, he references, for example, the painting, the slave ship painting by Joseph Mallard, William Turner. For example, he's referencing that, especially like in the kind of storminess and the kind of the color selections that he's using. And then another artist who comes to mind is James Hoff, who was in prison in Pennsylvania for 27 years and just became like, he's uh, just an exquisite person and artist. He, he was released from prison in August of 2019. And, and he, in, in many ways, he just was like, became he, a mentor to younger people in prison as an artist and also just as someone with a lot of wisdom. And, but he was so, he's really into Basquiat and, you know, he's, he he has a whole, like, just a huge, his knowledge of contemporary art and art history is impressive. It's just, and it's like a catalog. You, you talk to him and he's just, like, bringing up references after references after references. And so there is so much, you know, I, I think, that if anything, I don't want to throw out the category of outsider art or folk art. I don't mean to, dim- to diminish or dismiss them, but I do actively work in the book to resist the ways that uh, art made by incarcerated people or prison art gets labeled through these categories that are about reproducing the margins of the art world. So we're talking about people who are already so vulnerable and marginalized, and in some ways we can say outcasts from society by that status, right? And so uh, to me, the project is about centering art made in prisons to contemporary art practices. And that's why it was important for me to have the works of non-incarcerated artists like Sable Elise Smith, Maria Gaspar, Titus Kafar, very much in conversation with the kind of practices that are taking place among people who are in prison. You brought up the work archive, but I also feel like the book is about curating. And so it's like, who am I bringing in conversation with each other. For example, how Cameron Rowland and artists who's currently on death row, Kenneth Reams, are both thinking about racial capitalism and extractive capitalism and the, you know, and the ways that the state 
extracts wealth and resources from black people and black bodies. Those are just some of the kind of connective threads that are important to me. Speaking of threads, I skipped too quickly past uh, the Turner. I should have jumped in to identify it. It is a painting known as The Slave Ship. It was originally titled Slavers Throwing Overboard the Dead and Dying Typhoon. It's an 1840 painting made after the British Empire had banned slavery, but before that ban had fully taken effect. He says, shortening the story a good bit. One of the interesting things about Owens's Elapsium, which you referenced, is that each of the three panels of that painting are uh, about the same size as Turner's slave ship. So speaking of the inside prison, outside prison flow of information you, you, you were just talking about, how have groups such as the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition had an impact on art and art groups inside prison? Often when we think about like exchanges between incarcerated people and non-incarcerated people that we often think of it like outside artists, artists from who are not incarcerated bringing something into prisons or offering, quote, services. And I wanted to shake that up a little bit by thinking also about like how to think about the kind of activism and art making that's that emerge between incarcerated and non-incarcerated people. So I look at also some collaborations, for example, this group Prison Renaissance, which is an organization, a collect a collectivity that formed in San Quentin. Imelda Weaver is one of the co-founders of it. And they wanted to create an art and literary journal that was curated and edited by incarcerated people and that brought together art and writing by incarcerated and non-incarcerated people. And so they actually started that project from inside San Quentin and found allies outside of prison to create a website for the journal and the like. But the curatorial and editorial work takes place in prison. That kind of way of rethinking collaboration and rethinking resources and who is like, who's making decisions, right? Who's editing, who's curating. I think it fundamentally challenges certain ways that collaboration take place just broadly in social practice art, right? That we, like people are shaking up those categories, shaking up how we think about it who's giving, who's receiving, how people are benefiting, whose names are on these works and the like. And what I think is kind of a radical approach to some of this is emerged uh, among the ECC, the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition, formed out of protest, right, against the Met's Harlem on my mind exhibition, this, this kind of notorious exhibition that is written about very beautifully in Susan Cahan's book, uh, Mounting Frustration. But anyways, BECC, after their protests, formed into, immediately formed into an organization. And at the center of their, their practices, their work was what they called a cultural exchange with incarcerated people. They didn't call it teaching. They didn't call it you know, providing workshops, they saw it as literally creating an exchange between incarcerated and non-incarcerated artists, writers, thinkers, educators. And they created arts-based programs as a response to the Attica uprising and the manifesto written by 
Attica organizers about the needs of incarcerated people. So they literally tried to create programs that responded to what incarcerated people were saying they actually needed. And that the, their programs started off just like completely, you know, shoestring budgets, very bare bones and quickly out of demand, like de- meaning that other incarcerated people in other prisons were writing, asking for services, artists from across the country. We were like, we want to model. We want to create these kind of programs. And so it grew very, very quickly to the point where they were serving prison populations in like many states, working with a lot of exhibiting and professional artists like Benny Andrews was involved, Camille Billups was involved, Faith Ringel, Norman Lewis, Romare Bearden. They were involved in BECC broadly. And, you know, one of the works that I think speak really profoundly to like this idea of carceral aesthetics as uh, an earlier work is like Faith Ringo's United States of Attica. It's a really powerful, that powerful map where Ringold is like really just looking at the nation's history of state sanctioned violence and dispossession and also like the specific moment of Attica. And it was a part of a book that BECC put together called The Attica Book. And it's a really powerful book that's like a really diverse group of artists who had formed solidarity with incarcerated activists. So that's a that's an earlier example. And I partly try to trace what the, the, the legacies of BECC and some of the contemporary programs, but also like how many of these contemporary prison art programs that are run by non-incarcerated people also are very much a product of the contemporary moment and around the kind of professionalization of nonprofit organizations and some of the kind of some of the kind of conservative or problematic alliances that they choose to make or they feel like they have to maintain in, in order to keep the organization afloat the way that they partner with uh, departments of corrections, the kind of language they might use to talk about the populations they serve. So I, I'm trying to think really carefully through through that and also to think through it in a way that's not just like ripping these organizations to shreds, because I think it's easy as an academic and scholar to say everything that an organization is doing wrong, Right. I'm hoping to be nuanced in thinking about what I call fraught imaginaries. And it's really just the the kind of fundamental of like the imaginary possibility that one cultivates in sites of captivity is very different than I think we're, we have recognition and we're, we have mobility and we can develop relationships with museums and institutions because of our credentials and the like. Right. So I'm just trying to think in some more complex ways around what it means to collaborate or across states of unfreedom. Finally, will this book be read inside prisons? I am. Um, so one of the, one of the many aspects of this book being out in a world that gives me a lot of fulfillment. I don't want to say joy because we are talking about prisons, but I do feel deeply fulfilled by the work of this book. And I feel deeply fulfilled by the work of this book, partly because of the community that has fostered around it. And so I, my community has grown tremendously. And as I was writing the book and revising it, and I went through several drafts of this book, when I, my ultimate, my final draft, I said, who, who is my primary audience? And my primary audience, like, 
definitely the people who appear in the book, I want them to see their work and experience reflected with dignity and care. I'm not stuck on terms like accuracy. Of course, I want it to be factually correct, but I just I wanted them to feel like there's care and dignity and uh, recognition, a type of like understanding, transforming how we think about systems of value. And so I wrote the book with all the artists in mind and then thinking about the people who love the artists and then thinking about people who are currently in prison. And when I was working with my editor at Harvard, we had to do a lot of conversations and negotiation because Harvard produces all their books as hardbacks first. And I said, well, that's going to be a problem because if this is a hardback book, it won't go to my primary audience. Incarcerated people, most prisons don't allow hardback books in. You know, I can't move forward like this. And so what we were able to do was work with the Art for Justice Fund. And that's a fund that was spearheaded by Agnes Gund, selling a momentous work of art to create a fund that is about decarceration and about elevating projects and people who are working often very locally on issues around re-entry, issues around like families impacted by incarceration and bail reform, just a whole host of projects that are about ending or transforming the criminal legal system. So the Art for Justice Fund agreed to underwrite a special edition of the book that is paperback and that was printed and released in mid-March, even though the official release date of the book is April 28th. So as we speak, there are more copies of my book in prison than than in the broader public. Mark Lafney, Mark Lafney's wonderful series Pyrrhic Defeat is the cover of the book. He is currently in prison in Philadelphia, and his practice is these really beautiful graphite sketches of incarcerated people, and they're 12 by 9s, and at this point he's done like 500 of them. He sent me this really beautiful note saying that he he had just started reading this, and he says, this is hard to explain for me because I'm not very articulate with my words, so I hope the message comes through I feel like my prison experience of art making and the hurdles that come with it, my fears and hopes and goals, all of me, finally, I'm not alone in it and can see that there are many others like me. It feels like a huge weight has been lifted. Like I don't have to keep trying to convince people what this whole experience is. You and the others who shared their stories have explained my situation far better than I ever could have. Reading the book has been pretty emotional for me so far. And I'm sure I'll crack up a few more times before the end of it. Thank you for including the pics of your family and you in the book. I hope your family is all okay throughout this virus situation. He goes on and on. And then he finished the book. And when he finished the book, he wrote me again. He said, I just finished the book. You are so brilliant and such a warrior. Warrior. I don't even know what else to say. I'm in awe. The entire book is amazing. But the last chapter is especially my favorite. Thank you for being so real and sharing about your family. But it was like, say that to say that, like the messages I've been getting, like I was like, oh, I think I struck the right tone. It was important for me to have a kind of tonality to the book. I wanted for the reader to realize that like, I'm a student, 
you know, like, and I'm learning from the people who are like incarcerated artists, right? Like that I'm being guided, that I'm being guided along the way. And it's through these kind of acts of risk taking and generosity. And I just feel so good about being in conversation with people who made the book possible and have the words of the book resonate with their experience. That's terrific. Nicole Fleetwood, thank you. Thank you. Like many things that have defined our schedules and activities, Tuesday evenings at the Modern must reconfigure. Though disappointed by the abrupt halt to the live program, the Modern is excited to introduce a gathering and discussion alternative online. As a long-running program, Tuesday evenings has an amazing archive to draw from, and that's exactly what the Modern intends to do. Join the Modern as usual on Tuesdays from 7 to 8 p.m. Drinks and snacks are on you, but the Modern will provide thought-provoking content and lively discussion. The Modern is kicking off this new endeavor with the art critic, writer, curator, and art world icon, Lucy Lepard, who presented Undermining, in which she discussed pits and erections on April 17, 2012. Lepard's talk is as inspiring and relevant now as then. We hope to share airtime and exchange ideas with you this coming Tuesday, March 21st, at 7 p.m. Go to themodern.org, which will have a link to the YouTube stream. Countdown begins at 6.30 p.m. Terry Thornton, the Modern's Curator of Education, will introduce each presentation with a friendly and stimulating chat to follow. That's Tuesday, March 21st at 7 p.m. on YouTube and via themodern.org. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly 13,000 objects in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon treasures a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects by artists including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, Sage, and Stanley Whitney, is on view through December 31st. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Hammer Museum curator Allegra Pacenti. She joins me to discuss several recent acquisitions at the Hammer's Grunewald Center for the Graphic Arts. You may remember her from 2018 when she was on the program to discuss Stones to Stains, the Drawings of Victor Hugo, which was a pretty terrific show. Allegra Pacenti, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's great to be here. One of the objects the Hammer Museum just acquired is a heliogravure from 1861 titled John Brown. It is a print made from a Victor Hugo drawing that Hugo made in 1854. What was that drawing and what, what does it show? Well, he made a series of drawings in 1854 during his exile on the island of Jersey. You know, he'd been exiled from numerous places. From Paris, he went to Brussels, and then from Brussels, he went to the island of Jersey. And then from Jersey, he was kicked out and ended up on the island of Guernsey next door. But when he was in Jersey, a resident of that 
Ireland called John Tapner was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. And Hugo, who'd long railed against capital punishment, made a futile appeal for clemency, which obviously uh, he then though ended up being a witness to that hanging. Following that, he made a series of four drawings depicting the uh, event and the hanged Tapner using, he, he often used stencils in his in his drawings. He was very, very experimental draftsman as the exhibition evoked. The exhibition that y'all did in 2018 of Hugo's drawings. Right. The drawing, what the drawings were actually exhibited in that exhibition. And he used these stencils and he actually used the same stencil uh, that depicted the body of Tapner for all the drawings that he made. And then several years later, he was given permission to sort of transfer the drawing into a print and he retitled the print John Brown in protest against the execution of the American abolitionist. And the interesting fact to know around this development is that Hugo was generally really against reproducing his drawings in print because he felt that the drawings needed to be seen in person and they weren't conceived or made to be reproduced and they weren't conceived to be seen by the wide public. He made them really for his own personal appreciation. He made them as gifts for friends. He made them for his family, his relatives. So he had been asked many times if he would be interested in reproducing the drawings and publications and books by friends and publishers in Paris. But the only time he really agreed to do it and indeed pushed to do it was for the print that he dedicated to John Brown because he wanted it to be to be projected in the world, to be seen in the United States, to be seen in Europe. And indeed it was. It was a print that ended up being sort of replicated and it traveled. So, so he achieved that kind of exposure through, through the print. So I want to ask about the specific print and indeed how the hammer found it in a moment. But you mentioned that Hugo was opposed to capital punishment in 1829, he wrote a short novel called The Last Day of a Condemned Man, maybe his most major textual work about capital punishment. Do we know if he considered there to be any kind of, I don't know, linear or direct relationship between that novel and the 1854 drawings and the 1861 print? I mean, for sure, he was he was for almost 20 years in exile. And through that whole time, he stayed informed, even though he was in the middle of nowhere, really, in the Channel Islands and surrounded by sea. He could actually see France from his houses. And he remained connected to the world through journals, you know, correspondence with friends overseas. And through his own history and his own novels looking back in time. And I do believe that there are connections between what, what he was interested in before arriving to the islands and what he continued to be interested all the way through to the end of his life. And, and he was uh, a defender of human rights and, and capital punishment uh, sort of loomed very large in his in his in you know in his curriculum 
There are two changes or additions, not sure quite what the right word is, between the drawings and the print. One is the addition of the horizon line, and the other is a burst of light. I think I'm a, you know, I think burst is too strong a word, but you know, a flash of light or a soaking of light in from the um, upper left that lands on the hanging corpse. Do we know anything about how those two changes got made? It's not immediately visible, especially in the catalog. It's hard to tell. But Victor Hugo, his brother-in-law, Paul Chenet, made the print based on Victor Hugo's drawing. But as with everything, Hugo probably maintained a tight control on what the final image was like. And so I imagine he made those additions very closely with his brother-in-law. And I imagine, of course, you know, I, I don't know this for sure, but I, I imagine that he must have manipulated either the drawing or, or asked Paul Chenet to manipulate the print in order to evoke those changes. I mean, light, light and chiaroscuro were very important elements in his works on paper. And in terms of the print of John Brown, I would imagine even more um, significant to have a, a hope in the sea of blackness. You mentioned that two of the drawings were in the exhibition at the Hammer in 2018. The print was only in the catalog, and in the catalog, it's... Uh, the images from the uh, French National Library in Paris. How did the hammer come to find the print it is now acquired? Well, actually, we found the print shortly before the exhibition opened, and we acquired <laughs> it shortly, just right there and then, and ended up at the very last minute being able to include it in the exhibition. So, I mean, it wasn't bought, acquired this year. It was acquired in the past couple of years. We, I sort of cheated when I said that it was a very recent acquisition. It wasn't. But we managed to sneak it into the exhibition. And so we didn't own it when we published the catalogue. <laughs> Which is why, which is why you have the Bibliothèque Nationale version in the catalogue. Interestingly, um, since then we've I don't know we've continued the theme of uh, wretchedness, and we we acquired the uh, work a work by Albert Besnard, um, an etching of a hang of a, of a hangman, and so it seems to be an ongoing theme in our recent acquisitions. But yes, so we had uh, a sort of dramatic corner in the exhibition where we had four, actually three or four, now I can't, I can't recall, versions of that print, of the, of the drawing, well, the drawing and the print. The Bernard you acquired is The Hangman from 1873. It's fairly lurid. <laughs> uh, we'll have an image, I shouldn't be laughing. Uh, we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com as well. Another of y'all's recent acquisitions is a 1983 pastel uh, made by Lee Bonacou. Of course, the Hammer presented the 2003 retrospective of, of Bonacou's sculpture, uh, the last uh, big Bonacou sculpture show, in fact. Uh, what does the pastel show, and how did it come to you? 
Well, one of our acquisition strategies at the Grunwald, Cindy Burningham and I have been acquiring for the Grunwald, well, she for longer than I, but together for over 10, 11 years. And so one of our strategies is that we we like to, there are certain artists who we, we thrive to or, or attempt to collect in depth. And with some artists we've been able to do because we started acquiring early on and managed to do that within our limited budget. Unfortunately, with Lee Bontecu, that hasn't been possible because her works, her, well, her sculptures and her works on paper have become very expensive and absolutely outside of our budget. However, we were really fortunate recently to be the recipients of a gift from Margot Levin. Margot has very generously gifted a number of works on paper to the Grunwald. She, she's a fan of uh, the collection and things have sort of been trickling in now for years, works by Jasper Johns, John Baldessari, various works. And the most recent, among the most recent works that came to us was this drawing by Lee Bontecu. And what you can't tell from your screen is that the drawing is actually quite small. It's about eight by 12 inches, I, I believe. But what I love about it, it really reflects the the monumentality of some of her sculptures and also the sort of there were there are two types of sculptures I think within Lee Bontecu's work and one are these sort of bold and threatening constructions that strike out from the walls of the galleries and then there's another part of her work that is more about scintillating sculptures and it's sort of more whimsical stellar compositions and I feel like this drawing however small it is somehow it carries the same other world the energy as the larger dimensional work you know there's something cosmic about it and it, it, it just carries that same scintillating energy that her three-dimensional work do and it's very hard to do that on paper you know in sculpture you have the force of volume and in paper on paper obviously you just have the two dimensions so when you find an artist who can really render that three-dimensionality as well as keeping it light you know and, and sort of feathery and and allowing it to come through into the volume without being volumetric I think that's that's a, just a, a sign of great skill in a draftsman. Margot Levin, also um, a donor to the UCLA Art School, notably of its studio building in Culver City. This Bonacou is, um, there are a couple of things about it that really um, jump out at me. It is bursting with color, particularly, I mean, there's an awful lot of color in it for something of the size you just described. Listeners may recall the Bonacou Works on Paper survey that Michelle White organized for the Menil about half a decade ago, maybe a little longer now, which did not overplay color. <laughs> I mean, it was a great show. I don't. I, I remember that show vividly. You're right. It was very. It's. It was very black and white. It was a different body of work, but it's. It's. It's wonderful when you, one can continue to discover aspects of artists this way. You know, sometimes exhibition will focus on one element and then it'll be a window or door to researching another aspect of Lee's draftsmanship. I mean, the exhibition that happened at the Hammer in 2003 
was a mixture of sculpture and drawing. But I think there's room for, for more exhibitions, be it on her sculptures and on her drawings today with the, you know, recent works for an art, by an artist who, you know, con continued to reinvent herself, even though staying within the same parameters of her medium. The, the form that dominates the center of the sheet is, is kind of a, I'm going to make this sound more equational than it actually is, kind of a combination of an Alfred Dove sun and a waveform. What or how do you think Bataku uses that form? Does it signify something? Does it mean something? Does it refer to something? I've actually included this drawing on my checklist for an exhibition on the moon that I'm working on, not because it necessarily represents the moon. Uh, it may, but it may, may not. But because there's definitely something cosmic about it, something otherworldly or beyond our worldness about it. It may be a sun. It may be, you know, a form of a Milky Way or, but it's definitely something otherworldly. And I think as small as it is, it just still allows the viewer to dream up whatever we want to see in it in terms of beyond our world. Uh, I do think it's true that it's, it's either a sun or stellar or something beyond the here. And that mm. is apparent in her sculptures too. I, I unfortunately didn't see the, the exhibition in 2003, but from the catalog and the installation shots, the images really reflect this opportunity that the exhibition gave to sort of be in another world and to sense the there's a, there was definitely something reverberating, not musical, but there's sound coming out of these works. Even this little drawing, I could, you know, one could almost uh, create a sound out of it. The last acquisition I'd like to ask about is a Betty Sarr print. In fact, one of Betty Sarr's best known prints. What is it? Well, Betty Sarr is also one of those artists who we we haven't unfortunately had the opportunity to collect in depth the way we would like to and we we only had one work by Betty in the collection until recently and then I came across that work of Betty's actually it wasn't even an exhibition but it was it happened to be in the office of a gallery in Los Angeles and I I, I, I saw it on their wall and it just jumped out. It's well known to some and less well known to others. I have to confess that I personally didn't know it until I saw it. The title is Black Angus Meets Big Brahma from 1964. So, you know, Betty is primarily known as a three-dimensional objects maker and for her assemblages. But the truth is, is she's, she's also a fantastically skilled and prolific draftsman and printmaker, and she studied and practiced printmaking from the outset. At UCLA? At UCLA, in fact. And actually, you bring up a good point, because a lot of our acquisition, part of our acquisition strategy is also to represent the legacy of UCLA alumni and professors. So we, we try to maintain this very strong link with the UCLA arts faculty. And actually, Betty Sarr's parents met at UCLA. So there's an even stronger connection to the university. So and so and in fact, her earliest works are on paper. 
And using the soft ground etching technique, she pressed stamps and stenciled and found materials into her plates to capture these images and textures. And I find them really interesting because they connect and relate so closely to her sculptures that are also, in a sense, collages. She, she does that in this particular work as well. She sort of applies her own etching of a bucking ball to a sheet of found paper with a stylized, I don't know what that is, it's like a stylized anatomical stamp of a cow. And so she creates this cunning, but also really witty dialogue between the two cows and essentially between life and death. You know, one is extraordinarily alive and the other one is so sort of modular and graphic and, and still. As was really characteristic of her, you know, her work sort of delves into the mystical and the cosmological fields. and. There we go. There's, that, there's a cosmological field in a lot of our re recent acquisitions. <laughs> um, uh, there's, there's sort of that train going on. You definitely can feel it in, in Betty's work. I mean, when I look at it, I also see reference to the Black American experience. You, you referenced the oddly shaped stenciled cow at the far left. It is surrounded by references to cuts of meat and arrows pointing to where in the cow they came from. It is inert. It is the living thing as mere producer of things for other people. Whereas the larger figure, the figure that, that covers three quarters of the sheet, is a dancing bull full of life and verve of its own. Yeah, absolutely. She's definitely playing with that contrast in a strong way. Very poignant. Marvelous. Allegra Pacenti, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. So nice to speak to you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.